congregation, the text for the sermon this morning is from, from our scripture reading. There are the verses 36 to 45 where Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So please keep that passage open before you, then it's much easier to refer to it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are getting close again to Christmas. Today is the second Sunday of those four Sundays before Christmas that we call the Advent Sundays. So a few more weeks, and there it is, Christmas. Now, when most people think about Advent, they think about Christmas, of course. And maybe it is therefore that many people believe that Advent sermons should already be a little bit like Christmas. The thing is, though, that the word Advent does, mean, does not mean almost Christmas, but it means coming, pointing to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it always has been a tradition in most of the New Testament church that to use those four Advent Sundays to focus not so much upon the first coming of the Lord Jesus, but upon his second coming. Christ's second coming is the main reason for the hope of the New Testament church and its individual members. There will come a day when our Lord and Savior returns upon the clouds and then all sin, all persecution, and time fleeting as it is, will end in everlasting peace and, and glory in the very presence of God will begin. Our text for this morning is beside a very well-known story, a text that points to the first and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a text that has much to tell us the Lord's people of 2018. Our text is about the meaning of the dream which King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, dreamed in the time that he was on top of his power. And what an enormous power King Nebuchadnezzar had. Just listen to this again. There's Daniel speaking. O king, the king of kings... To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. In whose hands he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heavens, making you rule over them all. That's how Daniel describes the power of Nebuchadnezzar. The God of heaven himself has given him that power shows us that God allows much power into the hands of those who oppose him. In the hands of those also who are the enemies of his people. But we must never forget that God has the ultimate power. What we learn from Psalm 75. It is God who judges, he brings one down and he exalts the other And he wants no one, especially not any of his people, to have any doubt about that. He is 
in control. It is him who gives the power. It is him who takes it away. And that is also what the Lord assures us of in our text of this morning. And so I will preach to you Daniel 2, the verses 36 through 45. Under the team, in the face of the, of the world powers, the Lord announces, announces the coming of his kingdom. And then we will observe two things. First, the great image, and then also the small stone. And then we will see the stone striking and destroying that great image. In verse 31, we read that Daniel reveals the dream King Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. Daniel describes to Nebuchadnezzar that his dream had been about that great image, which looked mighty and exceedingly bright and frightening. And we read it, the head was of gold and the breast and arms of silver, the middle and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of mixed iron mixed clay. Now, from verse 37, from what Daniel says, now we know that that golden, that head of gold, represented the kingdom of Babel. The Bible is clear about that. But which kingdoms the rest of the, the, of the image represented, the Bible does not tell us. And there are various explanations offered for them. But the explanation which most of the, church, most of the church has believed to be true is that the silver breast and arms represented the Median and the Persian Empire and the bronze middle and thighs, the Greek Empire from Alexander the Great and the Iron Lakes, the Roman Empire, which later became divided and was symbolized by feet of iron mixed with clay. Now this morning... However, I want us to take a look at this image from a different angle. I want to look at the, at the image as a whole and not look at it in its parts. All these different kingdoms or empires form one image. And so we could say that this image of which Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head represented the world's power as it manifests itself as one intimidating, terrifying power against God and against his people continually reaching for God's throne. Continually striving to absolute power while at the same time really claiming to have it already. It dictates what people must do, what they must believe, what they must think. Continually it claims to bring peace to the world while slaying millions of those who do not conform to its fickle degrees. It is a frightening image. That kingdom of the world, the world powers. So, again, the, this bright and frightening image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of represents all the worldly powers of the whole world history from the first to the last. This image, you could say also, represents all anti-Christian powers. Also those powers 
of our time. But there is still more that we can say about this image. For it is clear from our text that this image had the form of a man. It has a head, chest, arms, legs, and brothers and sisters. That's very important because this teaches us that this image represents the kingdom of man. The big struggle for world dominance is the struggle of man, of mankind, the struggle as it began in the Garden of Eden when Adam ate from the forbidden fruit in order to take the place, the throne of God. And the man Cain already killed his brother Abel because Abel recognized God as the supreme ruler and pressured by Satan, fallen man cannot and will not tolerate this as long as this world will exist. It started then, that struggle, and it still goes on. And it's true, the world powers succeed each other, and each one has a different appearance. Babylon, with its unbelievable riches and luxury, follows the power of Assyria, and is followed by the Persians, The Roman Empire was succeeded by the Roman Church, the Islamic Ottoman Empire, and then the Roman Catholic Empire again, Charles V. Then came Napoleon. Adolf Hitler came and tried to establish the thousand-year Reich. Communism tried to impose the ideal state upon the world. They are all gone now. But who will succeed with it in our time? Is it Islam again? Or communism? Or will it be the United States of America with its ideals of capitalism, of democracy, freedom for all and everything, a new world order which will bring peace and democracy to all nations? Will they succeed? Does not the word democracy itself means people, man's rule. And is it not true, brothers and sisters, that we see also in our own country a growing and growing desire and a movement to drive democracy to its ultimate conclusion? Do we need more than more clearly than ever see the rejection of any authority, but that of the people? And that at the same time, there is a disallowing of any thought that God's law has any authority at all. Is it not true that with the over-exaggerated political correctness of our time and society, we are really after man-made world peace? We need to be able to be at peace at all, with everybody and everything and with every kind of thinking and every way of living. It's the peace that the kingdom of man strives for. And how is that different of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace of the Roman Empire that forced its peace upon the world of its time? The great image, the empire of man as always, 
was always and always will be a rebellion against God's rule. So the great image is mighty and is frightening in its appearance because it speaks great and blasphemous things against God and his people, just as the beast that came out of the sea in Revelation 13, verse 6 and 7. But we read that it opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That is a frightening image. That great image of the kingdom of man. Its form, its appearance is frightening also because within it one world power is built upon the ruins of the other. It's terrifying because that empire of man is built upon the thousands of millions of casualties of wars it destroys in order to maintain itself. We also read that the great image is very bright. Bright enough to completely blind all those who who belong to it. For they do not see and only too soon forget the genocides, the gas chambers, the concentration camps, the torture chambers, the fires and the lion's dens that once used and continues to use. Great image it looked frightening, terrifying, and threatening to us who belong to God's kingdom. With each succeeding world power has left in its wake a river of blood of those who confess God as their Lord and their King. Mankind has not changed since Cain. A man whom God so lovingly created after his own likeness and in his own image with the goal of a harmonious, peaceful and blissful relationship and fellowship with him and with each other. Man to whom God gave dominion over his creation, he turned against his creator, against the only one who truly loved him and who has truly given them peace. And ever since, There is that immense battle. Mankind has become the great image, the great opponent of God, who always grasps for the throne of God. See, here there is that image, the kingdom of man, in which man is his own God and his own savior. That's an image. It's great, mighty, bright, very frightening. Let's now look at the stone. In verse 45 we read that Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone which was cut out from a mountain but not by human hands. And from our passage it is clear that this stone represents the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Cut out not by human hands, this kingdom is not a work of any man. But it is the work of God himself. So we may say that this stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Luke 20 verse 18 the Lord reveals that he is that stone. 
He is speaking about himself as a stone the builders rejected. And then he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on, it, on anyone, it will crush him. Now soon it will be Christmas. And then we may all celebrate again the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, then we also celebrate the beginning of God's kingdom here on earth. The stone cut out of the mountain without human hands. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But how poor, how small, how inferior does this look, does, does it look that stone when compared with that great, mighty, bright, and frightening image of the kingdom of man? He does not look great and mighty or bright or frightening like the image. How, how, how much brightness was there in that stable in Bethlehem? This stone, it doesn't look frightening. What, what can that small stone do? Small stone. You can carelessly walk by it. You can step on it. You can also kick it out of the way and go on and forget about it. Insignificant is that small stone look in comparison with the great image. It is a little child in Bethlehem whose cradle is a manger and who is later crowned with thorns and thrown upon a cross. It's the stone. It's the builder's man rejected. Also in our time, there is that contrast, the great image and the stone. Brothers and sisters, the great image is terrifying. It is, it is frightening. Do you not fear when you see that also in our time the image of the kingdom of man becomes more dominant and powerful day by day in different ways all, but all over the world? It's frightening. Are you not frightened when you see that the kingdom of God seems to lose the little power it once had even in our own nation? Does it not scare you that when God's, command, that when God's commandments are treated as a threat against the freedom of man, and you see attempts to force Christian schools to obey the rules of that kingdom of man, is it worrisome that faithful believers are feared as fundamentalists and are perceived as a threat against the freedom and the peace that the world is after? Great image is is it, is it appeared not frightening? The rulers of men they adorned themselves with purple robes and perfumes, while for the citizens of the kingdom of God there seemed to be increasing need for sackcloth and ashes. Soon it's Christmas. And look at a stone. No glory of purple robes. No, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and, and lying in a manger. About 33 years later, you'll find him, a man robed of his clothes, hanging on a cross. Stone against the great image. It really, brothers and sisters, comes down to fate, is it not? It comes down to fate. 
The Lord Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In Hebrews we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. How urgent it is, brothers and sisters, that we every, every day join the disciples in their prayer for Lord increase our faith. Faith is so crucially important. By faith, Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth, declaring plainly that they were seeking a heavenly homeland. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, girls, let it also be said from us, by faith, they believe that God has provided something better for them. By faith, we may, we may see the unseen. By faith, we may soon joyfully remember a little baby in a manger. And by faith, we know that he is our savior and that he is the beginning of God's kingdom. By faith, we may time and again gaze at that enormous image of the kingdom of man in the grip of Satan, frightening, yes it is, but we know by faith that it is on its way to a certain defeat and utter destruction. By faith, we see him who became poor in order to make us rich, to give us victory, to give us peace. By faith we see him, this, him, the small stone, seemingly insignificant. But to us, who look at him with faith, we say with the bride of Solomon's song, yes, he is altogether lovely, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And with Asaph in Psalm 73, we, we say, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. For as frightening as the kingdom of man looks to us, by faith we know that one day God shall arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. His triumph will be glorious. Why? Because the picture of the great image and the small stones, brothers and sisters, it's not the whole story. It's not where our text stops. As we'll see in our second point, the stone striking and destroying the image. The mighty and frightening looking image. Do you remember what the feet were made of? They were made of iron mixed with clay. And no one is able to make iron and clay into a solid and strong substance. And so you see that that mighty, bright, sparkling, frightening image rests upon a very poor, unsteady, unreliable foundation. And as its foundation, so is the rest of the kingdom. Every manifestation, every embodiment of the kingdom of man is established with a sword. And each of them have proven the truth of what the Lord Jesus once said to Peter. For all that draw the sword will die by the sword. And because of this, every manifestation of the kingdom of man carries 
However invincible its power might seem, the root of its own destruction within it. Rising by the sword, shining by the sword, finally sinking away under the, under the sword of another. That has been the destiny of all those kingdoms. It's good to know the history, the world's history. It's become so, so clear that what Daniel describes, describes here, it, it's the truth. God is in control. One is built upon the ruins of the other. But the stone, what, what happens to the stone? It's not very clear from our text that it goes with the stone exactly the other way. Cut out with the human hand, it is seemingly insignificant. The stone rolls into the history of man's kingdom. Small and insignificant, and the builders will reject it. You see, looking at such small stone, and you think, well, that might roll against that mighty image, but it just gets crushed. At least, that's what the world powers think. King Herod would sniff it out. Caesar Augustus registers the whole world as if it is his. And even that small stone must obey and is registered along in the process. All the world powers ever since have been trying to destroy it. Such small, insignificant and powerless stone. Who has any respect for it? thing is that in our text, the word of God tells us this morning that's going to be some totally different. God tells us that this seemingly insignificant stone does mighty things. You see, that's how God works. He uses the small and the weak things to defeat those who are strong. He uses a small stone to kill the giant Goliath. And it is again a stone that crushed the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. A baby in a manger stirs the, stirs the world. And the world haven't been the same since. The baby in a manger changes the world. How Savior on the cross defeats Satan and sin and death. Look how that stone begins his shattering work. It rolls against the feet of iron and clay and breaks them to pieces. And then no one would have expected it, but that great image begins to totter and comes down in a terrible crash. And the stone, is it crushed underneath? It's not what we read. It continues to roll and it grows and it grinds the whole image of the kingdom of man into fine powder into fine chaffers blown away by the summer evening breeze as for man the bible says his days are like grass as a flower of the field so he flourishes for the wind passes over it and is gone and place remembers it no more congregation the stone it begins so small as a baby in a manger, as a man upon a cross, as a body in a grave. But it did not stop. It rolled on. 
En on the third day he rose again from the dead. And he rolled on and he ascended to heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's given all authority in heaven and on earth. The stone rolls on. The power of the gospel, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the world, but it is also the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the stone rolls on. The kingdom is not only here, but it's growing. In our time, it's growing. What's left of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? Where is the mighty Roman Empire, the all-including perfect state of Soviet Russia? How enduring was the Iron Curtain? How far did Hitler come with his dream of a thousand-year Reich, six years? And the stone grounded to pieces. Who is in power? See who is in power. And how far will the United States of America come with a dream of total democracy without God and capitalism softened by human compassion just to show that the mercies of the wicked are cruel? But the stone rolls on toward the day of the final confrontation, the final collision, we might say, the collision between the kingdom of man of sin and the great Antichrist and Jesus Christ as he will appear upon the clouds of heaven. The kings and the powerful men of this world's kingdom continue to dream many dreams. They are dreams of a more beautiful, a better and a safer world, or a world of peace on their terms, a world of happiness for all who submit to it. But the stone, it rolls on. Until it fills the whole earth. Soon there comes the day that the Lord Jesus will come again. And then the stone will finish its work. And there will be no contest. The mighty and bright and frightening image is no match for the stone. Which has become the chief cornerstone. It rolls and it grinds until there is nothing left of the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. Think of that. The Lord Jesus Christ make a final end of the kingdom of man. We're living in a time, brothers and sisters, that most people, even Christians, only want to hear about a loving and all-forgiving Jesus. But our text of this morning, however, shows us Jesus Christ crushing to find chaff all and everyone who opposes him. Could he be? Someone asked, did Don Jesus ultimately came to destroy the world? No. He came into the world to save it, to seek and to find that was, was lost, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, to proclaim the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to come for those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, to prepare for them a beautiful kingdom. That's why he came. Oh, surely he is now still also today the one who desires to be your savior. 
His words still ring through the world. Come unto me and all you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me that I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. He came into the world as the rock from which all people may drink the water of life for free. But if you reject him, you don't give your whole heart to him. Submit to him with all that you have. Then he will become that stone that one day will grind you to powder. And then it will be your own fault. Soon as Christmas, he may remember the manger in a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes so small. But he, as small as he is, as insignificant as either one or two, he either is your rock of salvation, your savior, or when you reject him, he's the stone that will crush you. That's the account of the stone. It rolls against the great image. Its beginning was small. There was no place for him in the end, and later no place for him on the earth even, but it rolled on and on, and it will grow until it fills the whole earth and there is no place left for the kingdom of man. Not a trace of it will be found, it says. All former things shall pass away. And he will make all things new. And God will wipe away every tear he has promised. Behold, I come quickly. The stone, he rolls on. And if you listen closely, he calls. While he's rolling on, he calls. Follow me. Follow me. so it is Advent we hopefully we hope for and we fully expect the coming of our Lord and we know that everything will, that we heard will most surely come to pass he has promised it this morning we are reminded of it again as we heard that in the face of the world's powers the Lord announced the coming and the victory of his kingdom Brothers and sisters, we began this morning our Bible reading by an invitation. With an invitation. And it went like this. Remember Psalm 46? Come and behold the works of the Lord who has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. And in his word this morning, we saw his great works. And we eagerly wait for his return. And then we say with God's people of all times and all places, the Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.